My thought is when you reached out to me, I know what you do. I can trust you. And I figured you're just going to want to hear my side or our side of the story as to what occurred. And that's it. I'm not here to argue with people about anything. I'm just here to tell you what happened. And then we're done with that. I can't change people's minds. Everybody's got their view on things and so be it. Vilified, deified. It's hard to find anyone apathetic about rapper and actor Tupac Shakur. By the time of his passing, September 13, 1996, he had sold millions of records. In death, the prolific musical artist would sell millions more. 25 years ago, it was clear to me how influential Tupac was, and I went in hard in reporting the case and scored several firsts. I was the first to get the surveillance video showing Tupac in the middle of a beatdown at the MGM Grand just hours before he was shot. I was the first to get the search warrant affidavit, documenting the gang warfare in Compton that broke out after Tupac was shot. I was also the first to interview the original Las Vegas Metro homicide detectives on the case. 25 years later, once again, an exclusive. I interview now-retired homicide detective Brent Becker. A lot of time I, I simply see it presented, Las Vegas Metro is bad because they didn't solve the case. Sometimes people will say, you know, they, they didn't care, sloppy. In this case, Russell Poole has some very specific criticisms of Las Vegas Metro. And I want to get your take on what he had to say. He said, nothing is off the table. This is pretty much a direct quote. The Las Vegas homicide guys showed us this whole cabinet of clues that they had just sort of died away and they weren't really following up on. I don't know what he's talking about. Would you have ever showed him a whole cabinet of clues? No, I don't know what he's, I, I don't know what he's talking about. Did you have a cabinet filled with clues? And by nothing, I mean nothing. Well, I mean, one direct quote I remember is if Elvis Presley had been killed, that case would have been solved by you all. Isn't that funny? Because I worked the cold case for an Elvis Presley impersonator for a while. I covered that case. And that case is still unsolved. You know, I'm not saying that maybe there's somebody out there that has that bigotry in them or whatever, but unless they know me, they have no right to accuse me of that. While this podcast may not be a tell-all, it's a tell quite a bit. Satisfied for how long? Oh gosh, it would have been summer of 97. It was just probably a little bit before the one-year anniversary. There was more than enough to satisfy me as to who did it. I'm Lena Nozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. And a quick warning, if you've listened to Tupac's songs, you've heard the words very lightly sprinkled throughout this podcast. Enough said. Lizzo, Michelle Ndege Ocello, Joni Mitchell, Steve Arrington, Grace Jones, those are some of my favorite musical artists. They've made me check my nails, run my fingers through dreadlocks, become a free man in Paris, dance in the key of life, not to mention becoming a slave to the rhythm. As much as I love them, I can't tell you when I first heard one of their songs. I'm not a hip-hop head. I'm not even hip. But I can tell you the first time I heard Tupac Shakur. I was on assignment right in the middle of what's now referred to as South Los Angeles. But when I was reporting on the story in the 1990s, the area was referred to as South Central. 
My piece was about a self-styled white vigilante who was driving into South Central in a pickup truck for the sole purpose of shooting to kill small-time black drug dealers. And when I say small-time, we're definitely not talking Al Capone, Rick Ross, El Chapo, or Tony Montana. We're talking about dealers getting around on bikes and buses. So there I was one night with a video photographer and an audio engineer interviewing a friend of one of this vigilante's victims. He even showed me the funeral program of his friends. A couple of things about that funeral program that I saw 25 years ago have stuck with me to this day. One is that there were honorary pallbearers listed. They included pallbearers who were in jail or prison. There were also pallbearers who had passed away. Yes, honorary pallbearers who were deceased. And there was one pallbearer who had the nickname White Boy. I asked my interview subject why that was, and he said, because he's smart. I can't tell you how crushingly sad it was to hear the ready internalization of racial animus equating race with intelligence. I'm sure you can understand why I never forgot any of it. There was also the bit of hearing nearby bullets whistling in the dark. A family member who was doing a ride-along with me that night all but pulled my elbow so we would leave because of those gunshots. Of course, I had a couple of more questions, much to my family member's chagrin. But before we left, I listened to a song coming out of the boombox of the person I was interviewing. It was called I Get Around, a happy, bouncy tune, thanks, Sokji, and rest in peace, that could not have been in more contrast with my story. I asked, who's that? My interviewee replied, Tupac Shakur. I'm Lennon Ozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. A cut from All Eyes on Me, the last album to be released during Tupac's lifetime, features the song Only God Can Judge Me. Well, even in utero, Tupac Shakur had a front row seat to the judicial system here on earth. His mother, Black Panther activist Daphne Shakur, was pregnant with Tupac as she simultaneously fought charges for conspiracy to bomb police stations and other locations. Even though she was never a lawyer, she represented herself and was acquitted after questioning an undercover cop who had infiltrated the Black Panthers. The acquittal came May 1971. Lassane Parrish Crooks was born in New York City a month later. And about the time he was learning to belly crawl, his mother would change her son's name to Tupac Amaru Shakur, a nod to a South American revolutionary. The New York Times reports that as her son grew, she held him to a high standard, including making him read every bit of the New York Times every day. He also began reading and performing scripts. At the tender age of 12, he performed A Raisin in the Sun at the Apollo Theater. More performances were in the cards when his family moved to Baltimore, Maryland, where he was able to transfer to the Baltimore School for the Arts in 1986. It was then he really started flexing his abilities as a rapper. In a quest for better days, his single mother moved the family to Northern California in 1988. Two years later, Tupac became a part of the group Digital Underground, after he says his mother kicked him out at 17 years old. She struggled with drug addiction. Many headlines about her son would follow. And as I researched his life and probed deeper for this podcast, it became clear Tupac very much lived his life in stereo while he would call women bitches and go to prison for sexual abuse, he also shared his deep love for his mother in the top 10 song, Dear Mama. He would later put together a group called The Outlaws. Probe deeper and you'll find that most of the group members trace back to Tupac's early days, 
including Yafu Fula, a.k.a. Yaki Gaddafi, who had witnessed the Las Vegas shooting. He was like a brother. In fact, that's how he identified himself to police. Tupac readily took to the mic for feuding, including the scathing diss track, Hit Him Up, that targeted the notorious B.I.G. But friends say before his death, he had plans to come out with a record that would unify the East and West. While Tupac rapped about all eyes being on him, apparently no one was watching closely enough on September 7, 1996, at least close enough to testify about the drive-by killer in a white Cadillac. My name is Brent Becker. Uh, back in September of 1996, I was a homicide detective for the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. It was in Las Vegas where Tupac's last days would intersect with a Las Vegas Metro investigator who had been a homicide detective for almost two years. When I decided to do the podcast uh, about Tupac, I did a lot of research, a lot, lot of research, books, movies, magazines, news articles, you name it. I saw a lot written about Las Vegas Metro Police in terms of the investigation, but I didn't say very much in terms of you, Detective Brent Becker, or your partner, or the Detective Sergeant uh, Manning, talking about this. And so that's why I wanted to do this podcast, because you and your fellow investigators on the Tupac Shakur case have largely been unheard. I remember 25 years ago interviewing you, and that was the first interview that you did on the homicide. But since then, you haven't done much. But that was my interest, that there was really a paucity of information coming out directly from you and directly from your you know, fellow investigators on this topic. So uh, I remember when I called you, and oh, not called you directly, but called the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and asked for an interview those 25 years ago. And I remember walking into the office and one of the first things that I saw entering was an image of a convict on an electric chair. And do you remember that? Yeah, someone must have had a poster or something. Right, as you entered. That was one thing I remembered. And I remembered thinking at the time that this is how Las Vegas Metro sees the electric chair and thinking of Death Row because their logo was the electric chair. And I remember thinking to myself, we're not in Kansas anymore. And that was for sure. Uh, what's your recollection of the, you know, 25 years ago and me coming in there with my photographer and a sound person to do the story? Uh, well, Mike and I had nothing to do with arranging all of this. I'm sure what happened was you contacted somebody of rank and it trickled down to our lieutenant who then probably trickled to the sergeant. And I just remember we were told that someone from America's Most Wanted was going to come to interview us about the case. And I, I can tell you, Mike and I weren't real thrilled about it, but and it wasn't anything directed at America's Most Wanted or you, because one, we didn't know you. Just, I think both of us were kind of not big fans of interviews or discuss in the media back then because you know that's what the sergeant the lieutenant's job was and we didn't know what the intent was or if there was an agenda or anything and all we wanted to do was get on with the case and uh you know it just kind of went from there it was several days that you were there you know i know you talked to us in the office we did something out in the field and then I know you did a lot of things on your own. And uh, I think, if I remember right, you actually sent a copy of the, the actual broadcast to us. 
I don't remember if I watched it on TV or not. It's just been so long. I just, I do know we had a copy of the broadcast, though. So you're reluctant to do the interview with me 25 years ago, and I understand you're in the midst of the case. 25 years later, why are you doing the interview now? Well, you aren't the first person to reach out to me because I haven't really followed everything, especially since I retired. But I have friends, and it's ironically, most of them are overseas in Europe are the ones that see stuff, that ask questions. And, and I just, you know, I say, well, whatever. If I can answer, fine. If not, I don't. I've just been more concerned about what the purpose was for the interview, because I know from what people have told me that they've seen it, a lot of finger pointing or name calling or whatever. And I just said, well, I'm not going to be part of that because I'm not here to debate anything. You know, I, I'm not here to defend anything. My thought is when you reached out to me, I know what you do. I can trust you. And I figured you're just going to want to hear my side or our side of the story as to what occurred. And that's it. You know, we aren't, I'm not here to argue with people about anything. I'm just here to tell you what happened and then we're done with that. It, you know, I can't change people's minds. Everybody's got their view on things and so be it. And to put it on the record, have you forbidden me from asking any questions? When I talked to you 25 years ago, I asked you about a lot of things, including some things that wouldn't necessarily be positive or considered positive, you know, regarding your police department. Have you said that I'm forbidden to talk about anything, just to put everything on the record? No. No. I, as far as I'm concerned, you can ask any question if I can or am able to answer the question, I will. And there may be some questions that I'm unable to answer. Maybe I've forgotten. And some Maybe I know the answer, but it would be not my place to reveal it because, one, it's not my case anymore. So I don't want to step on anybody's toes because I know it's an active case. There'll be an argument as to what active is, but it's not, as far as I know, it's not a closed case. And to be clear, you were one of the original investigators, but you didn't with your time with Las Vegas Metro, that was not the only thing that you did. No. September 7th and 96, you know, I was a homicide detective. Uh, I'd been in there almost two years when this happened. Because I went in in November, I'm trying to recall, November of 94 is when I went into homicide and I left in December of 2001 to another job. So, for for that time period, this was my case. This was my involvement. After December 2001, someone else took it over, and I had no direct in, uh, involvement in whatever happened from then on until now. And we are going to talk about a lot of things focusing on what you saw and what you investigated Although I am interested also, and that's going to be coming up in future episodes, for you to talk about the theories that have emerged, people who said that they have solved the case since then. Um, I also would like to say that you've covered a lot of homicides over the years. Can you, do you know how many? It's probably about 140 in that period of time, you know, for the seven years I was in homicide, it would have been about 140 homicides, or I call it, they're, they're actually murders, because you got to understand a homicide isn't necessarily a murder. A homicide is the taking of a life by another. There's justified reasons for doing that, depending on the circumstances. But yeah, about 140 murders, numerous death investigations, be they accidental overdose or suicide, and then some uh, several officer-involved shootings. So that was what we did. And over the years, I've covered 
hundreds of stories, not all relating to homicides, but Versace's murder. I was in Andrew Cunanan's apartment, in fact, when he was on the run. I covered the bombing in Oklahoma City, uh, covered a story about Ira Einhorn, who killed his girlfriend and lived with her mummified body for a year and a half. So I've done a lot of different stories as well over the years, but it seems like this Tupac story endures more than, it's hard for me to think of a story that I've done, and I knew it at the time that it was going to be a story for the history books, but 25 years later, to still see people wearing t-shirts, and I know when we spoke on the phone once, you saw somebody with a t-shirt. It really has endured. Does that surprise you? Yes and no. Uh, yes, from a personal point of view, a murder is a murder. Uh, from the general point of view, the man had a lot of fans, so they're going to stick to it. I mean, if you look at other uh, individuals, you know, normally if people just die of natural causes or such, and I, they may be fans forever, but it doesn't kind of, they don't kind of follow it or, or make a big deal out of it. In this case, I think Tupac Shakur became more famous because of his death. Now, I want to get to this sense of your first experience, your first knowledge of a police officer. We're going to go way back when I was real young. You know, you'd see policemen around the neighborhood or around town, and I always had respect for them. You know, I saw them doing good things. So that, that was probably the beginning. Uh, I know it was later on, a friend of mine actually in high school had approached me because I didn't really know anything about it. He was with the police explorers for the Phoenix Police Department. And he invited me down and I ended up joining them for a couple years until I got to the point where I was graduating high school and then I had to stop because I had other things getting ready to happen. So once I finished that, uh, I kind of made a decision that I was interested in law enforcement but because I'm still a minor, I guess you'd say, because I was under 18 and I had finished high school a semester early. So I was still 17 years old. I thought I'd go into the army and, uh, hopefully become a military policeman to get some sort of experience. Of course, I was 17. You can't join the army if you're under 18 on your own and my folks wouldn't sign for me. So I had to wait till my 18th birthday to uh, join. And which means I ended up coming back the last semester of high school for graduation. And then four days after graduation, I was on my first airplane ride thanks to the army to start my uh, basic training. Basically, the only thing you ever wanted to be was in law enforcement. Yeah, the best I can recall, I mean, I don't remember thinking about anything else when I was younger. Of course, I don't remember a lot of things anymore. But yeah, I would say that was probably it. You know, it was at the time... I thought it was a, uh, it was a, what fit me is wanted to do those kind of things to kind of help people out, you know, because literally it's, you have the good people and the bad people. And sometimes the good people can't take care of themselves and they need people to help them get through whatever. And you know, that was the idea. So you saw being in law enforcement is a noble profession. Yeah, I did. Um, you know, especially as a, a young kid, I every time I saw them, I thought they were doing noble things. You know, maybe I grew up in a different time or maybe it was because of the city I was in because Phoenix was, 
I don't know how people think of Phoenix back then. You know, it was just a city in the desert. It wasn't probably the uh, target city like Los Angeles or New York City or places like that people always think of. So you grew up in Phoenix. You join the military four days after you graduate from high school. You have an eye toward law enforcement. Yeah, I, you know, after basic training, uh, well, part of my enlistment was to go into the military police corps. So after basic training, I got sent to military police school at Fort Gordon, Georgia, completed uh, training there and then got sent to Germany where I spent, geez, two and a half, two and three quarters years, I guess, roughly. Then you come back home? I re-enlisted. I came back home and was stationed at Fort Huachuca, Arizona as a military policeman. I was there for almost three years and it was coming time to where I was either going to re-enlist again and decide to stay in the Army as a career, or I kind of watched for some job openings up in the Phoenix area, and really the only place I, I remember was Tempe, Arizona, was hiring, going to hire some people to go to the police academy. So I figured, well, while I was in the Army, I was able to get to Phoenix on some time off and take the testing and all. And then it was just a matter of waiting. I was, I was either going to get on the hire list or I wasn't. If I didn't get hired, I'd have re-enlisted and stayed in the army. And then it would have been a whole different life, I guess. <laughs> so you start in Tempe, then go to Phoenix. Yeah, I was, I was a uniformed policeman in Tempe. Uh, Tempe was a small town back then, you know, I guess it's still considered small, but compared to Phoenix, but it's, it was smaller back then, 1980. I, uh, Phoenix was hiring. I thought I'd go because it was a bigger city. There was more opportunities. So I tested and I was in Tempe for just under two years, I think. 22 months. Then I went to work for Phoenix. I was a uniformed patrolman there for, oh, what, two and a half years, roughly. And I ended up going up to uh, Las Vegas. And Las Vegas at that time was substantially smaller than Phoenix and substantially smaller than it is today. I think there were only 700 officers in the police department in Las Vegas when I hired on. So I went up there in 84, September of 84. I was a uniform patrolman there. I did a walking beat for a while in downtown Las Vegas on Fremont Street when it was still a street that cars drove on. Uh, I became a field training officer for a while, I went back to patrol, and then my first detective assignment was in juvenile, where we worked uh, all juvenile crimes and runaways, that kind of stuff. I did that for about six months, and then I tested to go to the repeat offender program, which was a career criminal section, and in that section, we targeted we targeted career criminals, you know, people that are continually doing burglaries or grand larceny or stuff. Because the thought was then, I don't know if it still is, that 20% of the criminals do 80% of the crimes. So I did that for, gosh, probably three years doing that. Then I went to test it. If I could stop you just there for a moment. In terms of that job, you would keep a look on, have your eyes on these repeat offenders. Explain how that worked. Well, we had 
two squads. There was a targeting squad and then the surveillance squad. And I started in the targeting squad. What's the diff? The targeting squad, you were in the office basically looking at data, statistics on people. And you'll see people that have been arrested a bunch of times for different crimes. So if they're continually doing it, they're continually getting arrested, that means they're they're pretty active because you don't, one, you don't usually get arrested the first time or get caught the first time you're at it. And if you get caught 10 times, you can pretty well guess they've done it a lot more times in between before they got caught. So, and we also targeted people that had like multiple convictions because Nevada had a, uh, it's basically a three strikes you're out. You get three felony convictions. You get uh, life in prison if you get convicted again. You know, that just depended on the courts whether they followed that or not, but that was a possibility. So, yeah, I did targeting for a while. Then when I went into surveillance, our job was to... Can I stop you just there again? Sure. So can you give me some specifics about you have a target, you wait for them across the street from where they live, you wait for them coming out of the jail from their last bust? It depends on the situation. You'd have deals where you know a guy and you know where he lives. You may sit up down the street and because you kind of get an idea when they're active by the way their arrests are being made. If you've got someone who's being arrested at all hours of the day, then they aren't, they don't have a routine, but a lot of them did. Like going so to you work, may set up, nine to five? Yeah, you might, you might sit up and watch and wait for them to come out and follow them around. And, you know, hopefully you're gonna catch them in the act of doing something. And then other times we'd get people that were arrested and we'd notify the jail that, uh, when this person is due to be released to let us know, then we'd set up outside the jail. We'd have a person near the doors where they were released. And then everybody else would be kind of spread out. And you just start following people out of jail. And uh, pretty well most of the time you're going to catch someone doing something eventually because they're recidivists. That's, you know, that's what they do. That's their life. And what was the quickest time you had somebody from the time they came out of jail or for the, to the time they went back? If I remember right, our, when I was working, I think 48, 50 minutes from the time the guy walked out of the, out of the doors of the jail to the time we arrested him. It, He'd gone and done a burglary or whatever it was he'd done. Just less than an hour after he was released from oh, yeah. imprisonment. Oh, yeah. it's And I mean, I'm sure they probably got a quicker time now. <laughs> and there were no complaints about pre-crime or there was a movie minority report where they were predicting who would get into crime before they got into crime. No, no, we weren't, we were looking for people that were criminals. We weren't looking for people that may become a criminal. I, I can't think of anybody we ever followed like that. It was always someone who had a history and it was usually a substantial history of crime. And what was the percentage of the people that you, let's say you were tracking a hundred of those people who'd been in trouble before? Just any sense of, I'm just curious, maybe it's it's too far back to have a recollection, but I'm just curious as of those hundred people you studied, what the percentage was that would go back from those you targeted? Oh, you mean go back to jail? Oh, I would almost say most, if not all. It's just very few didn't. I mean, that's that's the point. We we aren't going to target someone who got caught once in their life because maybe they were down on their hard luck. And those kind of people maybe learn their lesson. 
Now, these people were career criminals. I mean, they had multiple arrests, multiple convictions. They've been around the block. I mean, these aren't somebody who just, you know, had it was down on hard luck. These, these folks were out making, trying to make a living that way. And that was leading up to you becoming a homicide detective? Well, after that, I went into robbery for a year and a half, maybe. And in robbery, we did basically bank robberies, armed robbery, that, that kind of criminal activity. You know, and in bank robberies, you're working with the FBI because basically you have a state law for armed robbery, but I can't think of any bank robbery where the FBI ended up prosecuting them in federal court because it's a, it's a federal crime. So we just worked with them. We would do the initial paperwork in the arrest, and then they would do what they have to do to go to the U.S. attorney and then transfer them into federal custody. So how did you move then into homicide? Well, there was testing and uh, I actually was, it started out as a uh, carjacking and it turns out the driver of the, the owner of the car during the carjacking, he ended up dying of his wounds. So, but I had already arrested some people on the crime. So homicide never took it over because I had the case already working through the system and Actually, that came up during my oral interview for the homicide section. If we can back up just for a moment, give me some parameters of this case. You are in robbery. You're investigating a carjacking. What happened? Well, some guy, a couple guys went to a restaurant and they were there to get some, I think they were, if I remember right, they were taking some food home. And there were three guys there. Now, whether they were just sitting there looking for targets or what, but when they went out to their car, these guys decided they wanted to take the car. And I, if I remember right, the owner of the car wasn't really keen on it and resisted it in a way, and he ended up getting shot. Somebody or some bodies went in to get something to eat at a restaurant. The two people in the car went into the restaurant to get some food. I don't remember if they were eating it there, or they picked it up or what. I want to say they were taking it with. They came out to the car and there were other guys who were already in the restaurant in the, eating or in the, in, looking for in prey. In the vicinity. They in were the in the vicinity. Yeah, and they were targeting, they were looking for people. That's exactly what they were doing. You know, it wasn't that they just, hey, let's do this. And it just so happened that these two guys happened to be the unlucky ones and the owner of the car was the real unlucky one and that he ended up getting shot and dying from his wounds. So that that ended up going from a basically a carjacking or an armed robbery to a murder. So what impact did that have regarding you getting into homicide then? You investigated that as a homicide or I started it as an armed robbery and then when the guy died we upped the ante on it because now it's a murder so you just add the additional charge and then the DA you know they're the ones that decide how to prosecute someone and that's what happened we went to trial on that charge and uh yeah, during my interview with Homicide, it, it came up about it. You know, I mean, I think one of the questions is, what did you do to prepare or what have you done in your career stuff? And I know this case came up. I don't know if it had a bearing on anything or not. I've, you know, they do what they do and then they decide after the interviews who they're going to, how they're going to rank you. But you're the one who decided to try to get into Homicide Oh yeah, no, I, you know, they put no, they'd put notices out for stuff and yeah, I put my name in there and say, yeah, I'd like to test for this. And Why? 
I mean, that's how it went. I don't remember how many people there were that put in for it. You know, it's been a long time ago, but I just got fortunate. I think I was, I don't know if there's two or three of us got taken in. I don't remember because they were, I think there were some retirements going on because most of the homicide guys back then were some old timers. Why did you want to get into homicide? I just thought it'd be challenging. I mean, robbery was challenging. If if I were to look at the cases, I mean, we worked some cases in robbery that were very detailed, very intricate. I mean, you're talking multiple charges. I'm trying to remember one case I had, we charged a guy with 70 or 80 counts because it was a crime, a robbery series. You know, usually homicide, whatever happens, they've killed a person or they've gone into something and something happens. If there's multiple people there, they may shoot and kill multiple people there, but it isn't, you know, it isn't everybody's a serial killer running around killing people just to kill them. It's usually a spontaneous deal. And, uh, you know, I just thought it'd be kind of interesting you know, so it was just another challenge. So you get in and you must feel that everything that preceded that in terms of your experience set you up to be a homicide detective. Well, everything's learning. I've, I can't speak for everybody, but I, know that I'm going to be going into the homicide section trying to learn what I can. I mean, I'm going to be getting partnered up with a senior detective. There's going to be other people around. You're going to learn from other people's cases because you you see what other people do and it gives you ideas. Hey, I didn't think of that as an, a way of doing something. And, uh, Law enforcement, to me, is a learning process from beginning to end. You don't come in knowing everything. You don't leave knowing everything. If people say that, well, you know, I can't speak for them. There's some people that I guess are perfect in the world, but to me, it's everything's got a learning element to it. You, you can always be educated by something else that happens. How was being in homicide different than your other duties that preceded being a homicide detective? Well, first of all, now you're dealing with cases where people are dead. I mean, the other cases, your victims are usually, or they are alive. So they're going to be in court testifying to things that happened. When you have a murder victim, that person themselves aren't there to go on the stand and testify. Now, what happened to them uh, is going to come out in court by somebody, be it us or the crime scene analyst, or usually, you know, the pathologist, the medical examiner, the coroner's office. In a murder case, the doctor's always testifying because they've got to testify as to what they found. So that's going to help as far as determining cause of death and stuff. And then from our perspective, we've got to put all the other information together and, you know, to convince a jury that this is the person that did it and what they did was wrong, wasn't justified or, or whatever, you know, because... You have homicide isn't murder. Homicide covers a whole gamut of things. You know, people say, well, it's a homicide. It says, yeah, but that doesn't mean it's murder. Murder is murder. Manslaughter is manslaughter. And all those are called homicides. So, and it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of good work. There's a lot of hard work because you got to realize there's one, you don't have a victim to tell you anything because they're dead. So now you're kind of having to go by witnesses and evidence and such and try to put it together. 
did you have a motto that you worked by, that you lived by as a homicide detective? Well, I didn't have a motto. There's a guy, Vernon Geberth. He was a retired lieutenant, I think was his rank from NYPD. And he would, he'd been in charge of a homicide group. I mean, probably a lot of people. I can't go in. I don't have a clue how the NYPD worked everything, but but he ended up retiring and putting together a, it was like a practical homicide investigations classes, and they were usually week long, and they were very informative. I mean, the guy did a heck of a job. I I learned a lot from that because I actually one of my classes I went to the New Jersey State Police Homicide School. And Vernon actually taught a segment in there. And then Vernon also had Dr. Henry Lee was one of his teachers. He'd teach a segment in his class. And it was it was really good. I mean, I just learned a ton of things from that. But his one of his favorite things that he threw out, in fact, he'd go around and give you these little, they're like a little plastic card, placard or whatever. And it says, we work for God. And that was one. That was that was his line. And I mean, really, you are in a way. If you're a religious person, you're working for God because the person that got killed can't do anything for you. And so you're working, in a sense, to try and correct what happened here or to find who did this and uh, make them. Uh, suffer the consequences so much for so so to speak for their actions so you took that motto to heart oh yeah in fact i know that some of those little placards were posted around the office because everybody in the homicide section had gone to the his classes i mean he had different types of classes i think there was one or two that were three days and there was some that were a five-day class and, you know, he'd have a group of different instructors covering different areas within the realm of homicide investigation or murder investigation. Did all of those lessons and all your experience in Tempe and Phoenix and early on in Las Vegas Metro, did that prepare you for the Tupac Shakur investigation? Well, let me put it this way, because I know it's... Everything's about Tupac Shakur. What prepares you for the murder of a six-month-old child? Well, Tupac Shakur, I mean, so I guess it depends on the person. Is the murder of a six-month-old child less because it was Tupac Shakur got killed? Or is it more? Or is it the same? It's murder. That's the way I look at it. Uh... If, if you're going to say because a person is more important to other people, then yeah, I guess Tupac Shakur was more important. But to me, that six-month-old child was just as important as Tupac Shakur in finding out what happened. So did, did all this prepare me for it? I, well, it prepared me in the sense of going out and doing some of the field work, but Preparing you mentally? I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, I think it's harder to deal with the murder of a six-month-old than in a grown man. It's a six-month-old child. You know, this this is a child that can't fend for themselves right now, and they've been murdered. So we're... Not that a grown man deserves to die or a grown woman deserves to die, you know, but they still are capable of thinking things out. And depending on the circumstances, did they get themselves into this or did they not get into it? I don't, you know, it just depends on the case. Sometimes people are just walking down the street and unfortunately for them, some idiot comes up and decides to rob them for a buck or a candy bar or something. It goes bad and they kill him. And I've seen that happen before. So, Well, Tupac was in a car just driving down the street. 
Yeah, I mean, literally, that's all he was doing was driving down a car and he was heading to a nightclub to perform. So there's nothing in the that aspect of it that it's not a capital thing. You don't you don't kill people just because they're driving down the street going to a show. There's a very high percentage of cases involving black men, period, that are unsolved. Well, I can't give you a number because I don't have it in front of me, but of all the murders I've worked, there's a lot of murders where the victim was a black male or black female. A lot. And I'm not talking five or six. I'm talking a lot. I, I don't know if I can say it's 50% because I just don't know. It's it's a high number, though. And a lot, a majority of those have been solved, meaning piece of people were prosecuted and gone to prison over. So race has nothing to do with anything. If, to me, that's a silly, that's a, that's a silly thing to even bring up from the, those people's perspective. But is it I realize that is, a to, that is a topic today, especially. But that has nothing to do with my thought process. And I'm insulted that someone would accuse me, if that's what they're doing, of having that thought process. Well, I mean, one direct quote I remember is, if Elvis Presley had been killed that case would have been solved by you all. Isn't that funny? Because I worked the cold case for an Elvis Presley impersonator for a while. I covered that's still that case. still not solved. Yeah. And that case is still unsolved. So, yeah, it's, you know, I'm not saying that maybe there's somebody out there that has that bigotry in them or whatever, but unless they know me, they have no right to accuse me of that. That's, and I'm, I'm going to say it. They have no right to accuse me of that because whoever said it doesn't know me. Well, I would say it wasn't just one person that that sentiment I've seen, not with just one person saying that. Sure. Well, and that's like me saying those people are racist. And I'm sure they'd say, he can't call me a racist. I said, well, sure I can. You just called me or said something about me. I don't know you. I, one, I wouldn't do that in real life. If I don't know someone, I'm not going to sit here and accuse them of something. I says, they may uh, express feelings that make you think about it a little bit. But for someone to accuse me of something not knowing me, have no idea who I am or what my background is, is absurd. And But I can't do anything about it because people can say what they want about you. But again, the we look at the backdrop of Black people not being allowed by Las Vegas Metro Police to walk on the Las Vegas Strip. Well, that wasn't the Las Vegas Metro Police. That was pre-Las Vegas Metro Police. Okay, that well, was probably, law enforcement. That was back, yeah, that point, was probably back taken. in the Clark County. Yeah, that was probably back in the Clark County Sheriff's days. Right, that, but that it's law enforcement. The early strip, yeah. Law okay. enforcement's involved. Again, if you, if you want to do a carte blanche labeling of that, then I guess you can do that. But I don't think highly of people that do that, that... Because you're law enforcement, you are automatically thinking they're acting this way. No, I, what I'm, I'm trying to express is the backdrop of where people come up with well, that sentiment. And because I don't think you would disagree with me that there was a time black people could not walk on the Las Vegas Strip. I, oh, I agree with you, but my argument is... One, I wasn't there then. Okay, so don't, because this happened back then, doesn't mean that that's the case now. I says, if that's the case, then Los Angeles Police Department's got issues 
every agency's got issues. There's people from the past that have histories come up on different accusations. So do you automatically label 9,000 police officers in the Los Angeles Police Department because of one person or well, because of history? I said, no, you don't do that. You hopefully grow and improve because of negative things that have happened in history. I'm not saying everybody does, but you would hope they do. I mean, we talked about it before about the person who went to the training and says Martin Luther Kuhn to police trainees at Las Vegas Metro. So you would say about that? That I had no business saying that. That has the person had no business saying that. There's, there's no place for that in police work. There's no place for that in your thinking of doing police work. It, it's just a, that's a negative thing that it has no, that doesn't benefit anything. If anything, it's, it, it's a detractor that could raise questions. Yes. And, and I, and I know where you're going with that as far as if it's the this guy saying this, if people yeah, see if that, that's happening. That, yeah, and he shouldn't be saying that in front of a bunch. Uh, you say it was a recruit class or just a training class? Or a what? training class is my understanding. Either way, that is not, if especially if they meant it, which from the way you presented it, they were. it was quite clear they had no qualms about saying it that way. In front of trainees, including some black trainees. Yeah, and they didn't clarify what they were saying. As an, they weren't using it as an example of something that was said once before. This person was saying this. Yeah, there's no place for that. You, there's no 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 reason to corrupt the minds of a future police officer that way. Right. I mean to say it seemingly freely. And again, I'm not saying that you said that by any stretch of the no, imagination. No, 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 no. I know but you're talking about. You've said. Earlier on when we were talking, you said somebody has said I've had this view or whatever. And I just thought, how can they say that about me? Unless you're saying they said it in general about the department. It was about the really... investigation. Like why okay. didn't they why didn't they solve the case? If it were Elvis, the case would have been solved. Well, and I disagree. I says, okay, that isn't a direct attack on me that's that's a generalization you know again that isn't what happened people are going to have that view there's nothing i can do about it ignorance is bliss and they've got a lot of ignorance in their bliss by thinking that way so if because there's nothing we meaning the people that worked on the case did that substantiated that thought process and by the examples I'm bringing up, it's more of an issue that those feelings toward your investigation are an outgrowth based on other investigations in the context of statistically somebody who's, who is white, their homicide is more likely to be solved than somebody who is black. And that's not Las Vegas Metro. That's nationwide. That's not yeah. your department. That's nationwide. But what are the totality of the inform? What's the totality of the information that was obtained from those cases? That would be my first question because it's real easy to go black, white, brown, whatever. I says, what kind of information was made available during those investigations? Because I could counter that as many of the investigations that I worked where black males or females were murdered. We had to work really hard to get information to get the person to court because no one wanted to talk. Depending on the circumstance. And everything has got to do with circumstances, the surroundings, the people involved and such. And that's where I think this particular case A lot of the players involved in this case 
other than the, the victim, Tupac Shakur, you know, there's some question of what their lifestyle is, so to speak, what kind of activities they were involved in. And I have seen in some of these interviews, at least, I, th I think they were probably early interviews, there were some comments that these type of cases are tough to, to solve because nobody wants to talk. And Lieutenant Wayne Peterson, who was not the lieutenant when I came and did this story, he basically said, live by the Glock, die by the Glock, in not so many words. Well, that's his quote. I, I have nothing to do with that. But, you know, I'm going, I'm going more on comments made by other people from other agencies talking about, you know, in particular, people who had some expertise in the gang field. I heard them making comments that pretty high percentage of murders involving gang members are unsolved because the people involved aren't saying anything. Got you. And is that Any the investigator's fault or is that people you're dealing with's fault? Anything else you'd like to add on the topic? No, no. All I can do is emphasize that skin color had nothing to do with this black, white, whatever. I mean, there would, there's no benefit for us not wanting to solve this case. Because here we are 25 years later, getting the mud slung around again, you know, or apparently it's been going on forever. I says, wouldn't it have been better to put someone in prison for it? At least, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know that it would have changed some of the stuff because there's always going to be naysayers about everything. Yeah. And it's also possible that race can play a role in solving the case. And it's also possible that race didn't play a role in, in this case. Well, race didn't play a role as far as from our perspective. All right. It didn't matter. I mean, most everybody that we talked to directly, when I say directly related, meaning we're there that night, we're all black. Right. And it's, I guess I'm also we, saying... We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't go out and choose who we had to talk to. Remember that. You know, we're just, we're, we're playing the cards that are dealt to us. And we're going to try to do the best we can, and we hope we can be successful. That first night during the interviews, there was some success, but there was some things that weren't so successful that later came out. So my, my thought is, if you're going to make an accusation, the old adage of put up or shut up. I said, if you're going to say something, prove it, substantiate it. Just by saying it doesn't mean it's the truth. Because yes, I've I said agree. multiple times through this story, I can say a lot of things about different people and it's not substantiated, but doesn't prevent me from saying it. And it can be hurtful to those people too. And so, but again, what can you do? You're dealing with people that are that way. And, you know, who knows? And maybe they've grown up that way. They've been raised that way. Maybe they've been mistreated and it's caused them to be that way. Yeah, that ding, happens. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, then it's shame on the people that caused that person to think that way. You know, but it wasn't me. But if... Give me a chance. That's all I ask is if, if something's going on, give me a chance. Don't close me out right away because of something that's happened to you in the past. I do understand that, that people think that way, but that's not me. So, And I will say I don't close you out, even though we had a very different experience <laughs> in terms of the first time we saw law enforcement. I mean, I was... Five or oh, yeah. six in a car in the South where somebody followed us, 
the deputy sheriff from Rome, Georgia, to the border of Alabama with a, a gun just because we apparently had a passenger in the car they didn't approve of, a white woman. And that's my first recollection of interaction with police. And I was terrified. I was a little a little girl. So we both come to this path through very different backgrounds and experiences. And I am glad to hear your, your story, your side. This is an opportunity to show another view, your view, which you've never ever shown at this level of depth before, even with me 25 years ago. I appreciate the opportunity and, uh, you know, this will be it because I don't intend on talking to anybody else anymore. Twenty-five years later, no arrests have been made in connection with Tupac's murder. If you have any questions you'd like to ask retired Las Vegas Metro Detective Brent Becker about the case, you have a few ways to reach out. Use the hashtag TupacMurderPodcast on Twitter or Instagram, or go to my website, TupacMurderPodcast.com. You can type out your question, record audio or video, and send it in. We will get to as many of your questions as possible. But then again, you may have answers to what actually happened 25 years ago. Send me a private message via Tupac Murder underscore podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or just go directly to TupacMurderPodcast.com. I'm Lena Nozizwe reporting. Tupac's Murder Was His Case was created, produced, written, and hosted by Lena Nozizwe. That's me. I also came up with the artwork and music. Jen Nathan Orris is the sound producer and audio consultant. Lowell T.C. Woundla is the creative consultant emeritus. You've been listening to Lena Nozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. For extra content, go to TupacMurderPodcast.com. Next time on Lennon Azizwe Reporting, Tupac's murder was his case. Take me back to the beginning. You're at home? I, I was actually asleep because Mike and I were on call. And uh, when you're on call, you got to be concerned. Yeah, you're going to get that one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning phone call, which happened quite often. So I, I know I was in bed. I got the phone call. Uh, it would have been from Kevin Manning, my sergeant. He said there'd been a shooting. I'm sure he gave me the a location to go to. And the thing that kind of caught my interest was that he said no one's dead yet. Traditionally, we didn't go out to a, scene, a murder scene or a homicide scene unless someone was deceased. If they were alive, someone else took the case. So why were you called? Well, from what I gathered, whoever Kevin talked to, because I don't know who he got the call from and how it was presented, but it was that whoever was shot and was alive, apparently that person knew a little bit about him and figured it had the potential to be a big deal. You've been listening to an Azizwe T original. All rights reserved. Three, two, one.